and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I am absolutely kicking myself this week. I was out eventing last weekend, jumped to my first ever show jumping clear out on Alfie, and then forgot to set up for a plain fence cross country and threw away a good placing with a very stupid 20 penalties. And I keep telling myself that everyone came home safely. No medals were depending on my performance, but uh, I do think that everyone who's ever competed a horse can relate to that slightly niggling annoyance that uh, keeps coming back to me this week. Our guest on this week's podcast is the show jumping legend John Whitaker. He talks about Britain's recent success in Barcelona and looks back at some of his former victories. Winning the World Cup final back to back, I think the first time, I think that was quite special because I think I was the first European to win and um, put us on the map a little bit. You know, it probably changed all our lives, to be honest. We'll also review last week's Horse of the Year show talk about a breeding legacy project and about a new ethical framework for decision making in horse sport. Finally, equestrian psychology coach Charlie Unwin will talk about the physiological challenge of tackling nerves. Many people believe that it's the physiological component of our performance that is, if you like, the core of our performance. If we don't get our physiology right, it's very difficult to get our mentality right. So, brush out that tail, let's get going. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm delighted to be joined this week by one of the greatest names in the sport. I'd be here all day if I listed even half of his greatest achievements, so let's just say he's probably the best horseman you'll ever see and an all-round legend. It's John Whitaker. John, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jen. Yeah, nice to be with you. So, John, let's start by talking about the recent Nations Cup final in Barcelona, which is a sort of tremendous end-of-season finale, and you were there riding on the British team. Do you still get the same buzz now from putting on your team jacket and riding into the ring for Great Britain? Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like I've been out of this, you know, the, the top league for a few years. And, uh, yeah, to get uh, picked to do the, the big final in Barcelona was, uh, yeah, it was nice. So, I... I was looking forward to it, yes. Good. And you didn't win the big one, unfortunately, the big finale on the Sunday, but there was a great victory to savour on Saturday night, wasn't there? Have you ever won so much money just for jumping a practice fence? Tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, first of all, I think we're a little bit unlucky to, um, you know, not to make the cut in the, the big league on, on, on the Sunday, but I think we were actually unlucky um, I think it was always going to be, a, you know, a bit of a challenge mm-hmm. when you haven't got your, your real top riders in the team. But to be honest, I thought I, we were very unlucky not to make it. Um, I think if I'd have ridden better, a little <laughs> better, we might have been all right. But I mean, Harry, Harry Charles and Emily Moffat and Holly Smith, they were all brilliant. Yeah. It was good for Jack to, to be on the team, although he didn't, he was reserved. He didn't quite make the team. Um, but I mean, Harry was unbelievable with his double clear. Super, wasn't he? Emily was great. You know, she was unlucky to have the silly fence in the first round, triple bar. And it was really unfortunate fence, you know. And and Ollie has ever rode great. You know, she's very determined mm-hmm. and positive. And yeah, like I say, I think I'm not one for making excuses, but we were, we were a little bit unlucky to not to make the cut. And um, it was only one penalty as well, wasn't it? You know, it was it was close. 
in the end, it was one penalty and it was finest of margins. And uh, but anyway, like you say, we came out uh, for the second round and everybody rode absolutely brilliant. I was my horse was warming up <laughs> really good. I was <laughs> actually I was I was actually feeling really confident. Yeah. And uh, but then I suddenly realised that maybe I might not have to jump if uh, when the the last French guy went in and and his horse stopped. Yeah. Did it stop it even even stopped at number one? So I suddenly realised I, I didn't even have to jump for us to win the to, to win the thing. So um, it did happen to me once in my career that I didn't have to jump both rounds on a Nations Cup. Many oh years really? Ago, but, <laughs> but normally, to be to be honest, usually when you're last to go, you have to go in there and they say you need we need to jump a clear round. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, so every now and again, it's nice uh, it's nice to get away with it. You know. Um, and what was sort of happening behind the scenes when you've come back from the sort of disappointment like Friday night? Did you, did Di Lampard sort of give you a pep talk? You, uh, you probably don't need a pep talk, but did, did you regroup together or did, were you just all sort of concentrating on your own horses after that? I think mainly we, we concentrate on our own horses and our own performances, but to be honest, it's part of the job and it's probably the most difficult part of the job to get over these, you know, bad round, bad days or unfortunate days, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you've just got to get yourself motivated and, and keep going, and and it, it just doesn't happen in big events. It happens all the time, you know. You have to. So many times you have bad days, and you've just got to be uh, strong and determined, and and you know. For me, it takes probably about couple of hours to get over, to get <laughs> yeah. over it you know walking around in a depression for a while oh, and then I start yeah. give myself a shake and um, think right you know we have to um, we have to get better from this and look, look you know I think you always have to think positive and like think think of it as a positive and you know get, get stuck in and and I think uh, I think all the top show jumpers have to learn to do that because it's just it's just part and parcel of it, you know, and, and the ones that can't get over it and come back and get stuck in. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, it's something you can only learn, I think, through experience. And with three really sort of young members of the team, it's uh, they. I think they showed really great attitude to come out and and do that again on Saturday night. So absolutely, because I mean, Harry and, and Emily are, are really, uh, you know, really very young, and they both came back brilliantly and uh, did the job, you know. Yeah, I mean it's fantastic in any sport to have a you can have a forty-year age gap. I hate to bring it up, but <laughs> between you and the younger members of a team, I mean, what other sport could that happen? It's you know, it's really special that actually, isn't it? It's it is. I mean, I don't think there's any other sport really that sixty-six-year-olds can compete against <laughs> 20, you know twenty-one-year-olds and um, yeah. and in you know and in. in sometimes beat them you know that's it <laughs> uh, my one of my favorite moments was actually when harry charles revealed that it, it was on his bucket list to jump on a, a team alongside you how did that make you feel <laughs> no good actually you know i, I didn't i didn't quite expect it because he's he's a cool customer uh harry you know and he, you know that was really nice because actually the first time i was in barcelona i think i'm pretty sure it was 1984 Oh yes! Wow. And probably none of the rest of the team were born by in 1984. <laughs> I'm not sure how old Holly is, but definitely yes. the, the, other, the other two were nowhere near being born. 
Absolutely. What are your memories of Barcelona back then? I mean, it's a show steeped in history anyway, but um, what was, how different was it back then? What are your memories of those early days, you jumping out there? Yeah, okay. Uh, I remember it really well. Um, I mean, the ring's more or less still the same. The actual footing's changed a few times over the over the years. And, and I must say, actually, the footing is really good at the moment. It's uh, excellent ground to jump on. But I actually won the Grand Prix uh, in 1984 with hopscotch and we jumped the course like you like you jump a course the second round you jump the same course in reverse and it's not you don't see it I didn't actually I've never ever seen it much in, in my career but so obviously they, they change the oxes around you know you don't you don't jump triple bars backwards or anything yeah. you know they change everything around but it's uh, yeah, it, it, it was quite quite unique and I thought it was quite good I think I was the only double clear on that occasion with Obscotch and I won I won it. So Amazing. Oh, my goodness. It just shows uh, how things have changed. But, um, yeah, there's still some, some interesting things that we could learn, I think, from, from back then. It's, it's brilliant. And just going back to um, the Nations Cup, the Dutch victory, you must have been really impressed with the way they came out and, and did the business. Yeah. Over the years, the Dutch, they seemed to go up and down a little bit, you know, with mm. the... With the results, and I think it's a little bit like most countries. You know, you have your, you have a couple of years where you've got a really strong team of horses and, and rider combinations, mm-hmm. and you you have a few to pick from, and then you can go through a bit of a lean time. Which I think, to be honest, the Dutch have had a bit of a lean time the last few years. They've, they've come back. Well, they were really, really good this last weekend. Um, I must comment on uh, Willem Graves' horses, a seventeen-year-old. And he jumped absolutely brilliant, and he looks like a he looks like a, an eight year old. You know, he looks so <laughs> great. And I said to Willem, you know, well done for doing such a good job and uh, looking after the horse for so long and keeping him so good. It's fantastic, isn't it? That's Carabol. He's uh, yeah, he's been yeah, a really good seven, horse for him, hasn't he? Yeah, and he's, he's seventeen, and he's probably jumping better now than he has done. Oh, it's know, just all his so all his life, and uh, and he's really enjoying it. So. Any other sort of standout performances or horses that you thought you'd like to take home with you over the last uh, three days? So many good ones. I mean, I actually think Emily's uh, winning good is an absolute superstar. You know, I think he's still young and I think there's still the best to come. You know, he's, he, he just he just goes in the ring and, and does the business. You know, he just does it. It's no, no fuss, no messing about. Yeah. <laughs> And Emily's, you know, improving and, and, and getting better and better all the time. I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with, actually. Oh, I was very, imp- very impressed. And I think the horse is an absolute superstar. Um, and there was lots of praise for course designer Santiago Varela. He's, um, he was the builder in the Tokyo Olympics as well. What are your thoughts on his tracks? I think the guy just gets it right, really. You know, um, I've jumped his courses for, for quite a few years. I must say, when I walked the courses, I thought they're they're big, they're yeah. big, and difficult. <laughs> but he he gets it right, you know. He, he um, often gets the right result. Well, he always nearly always he always gets the right result, but he, he gets the right amount of clear rounds. He just uh, he's just like a gifted course builder, actually. Yeah, it was fantastic. I have to say, walking that course for the final on Sunday, it was it was a real reminder of just how big and impressive it can be. But, you know, it's it's interesting as well. He's visually interesting. He, and I think Di Lampard said as well that he, he makes it educational as well. You know, you come out of there having learned something, even at possibly at your age. I don't know. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. It's, um, 
I mean, he had a bit of everything in there, you know, scope, carefulness, uh, control. You know, you, you had to have everything to jump his courses. But then, having said that, there's a lot of uh, rider-horse combinations that do have it all. Yeah. You know, they have, the they have the scope, they have the carefulness. But that's what you need to jump clear around his courses. You need everything, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, this comes, a, it's been a pretty special year for you. You've done, um, it's, I think everyone's had a sort of quiet couple of years, but you've come out and you said you just, you feel lucky to still be jumping at this top level at your age. Um, just sort of sum up this year, you must feel sort of pleased with it all, have you? Yeah, very pleased. Uh, the two horses, my current two horses, um, unique, the, the Frank Bart and Sharid, I've had them just over two years, about two and a half years now. And they were both fairly inexperienced when I got them. And I've been doing kind of three stars and building up to four stars. And this year uh, I've been doing five stars. So it's been, uh, you know, I had faith two years ago. I thought they were, you know, quite good horses. Yeah. And I had faith in them and they've kind of come through now. You know, it's been, yeah. I mean, this year has been really good. Like, um, what have I done? Four, I think four or five stars. You know, pretty good. I think started off winning a a, a, a Grand Prix in Villamora this oh, yeah. spring mm -hmm. time, and uh, the ball wins uh, were quite good. Although not actually winning much, but I felt like the horses were jumping really good. And then it really came; everything came really good in London. Oh which... my goodness! Yes, tell us about that epic jump off. It was uh, it was great to watch. How was it uh, in the saddle? No, I mean it. It, it felt really good. Really, really good. I mean um, the global tours. They're quite a difficult format because you have to qualify for the Grand Prix. So I set off de determined and um, the, the first day you jumped great. The, f the, the first round before the Grand Prix where you had to qualify, you jumped great again and he was placed fourth or fifth in, in the, both of those and kind of took the pressure off a little bit, you know, when you've had a couple of good results and went, in, went into the Grand Prix, same again, walked the course thinking, well, it's tough enough, tough enough. And there was a really difficult line, which, probably 60-70% of the horses were knocking this double down after the triple bar going towards the, the, the in-gate and I kind of figured out in my mind how I was going to ride that and, and that when it, when I actually jumped that really good I thought right pull yourself together you can you can jump clear <laughs> yeah, you know oh, and, wow. and then getting so close in the jump off I mean it reminded me of you know some of the great Grand Prix I've won with the, with some of the great horses I've had and uh, with the crowd behind me and Jumping the last fence, thinking have I won, have I won? Yeah. Anyway, I was. <laughs> anyway, I was second, and that was still very good. You know, it would have been absolutely unbelievable to win there with the, with the atmosphere and everything. Definitely, but and as a result, you've qualified for the Super Grand Prix in Prague no, next month. Um, how are your yes. preparations going for that? What are your expectations going to that massive event? Yeah. Okay. So, since since qualifying for Prague, I've had to change my plans a little bit. I was. We were going to go down to uh, Spain and, and Portugal this autumn. But since I've qualified for Prague, I've, just I've had a change of plan. I'm going to do some indoors, try and build up for Prague. Of course, yeah. So I'm doing also the air show and then uh, hopefully try and get into a couple of World Cups just, mm -hmm. to, get, just to get going back indoors and, and try and get the preparation right for Prague, yeah. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Well, fingers crossed for that. Um, yeah. And you've mentioned your two top horses. Have you got any sort of younger ones coming up in your string? Which ones are you most excited about at the moment? 
Yeah, I've got a couple. I've got one that's I think is um, exceptionally good. Is actually six year old by Argento. Oh, super! I haven't had. He's, he's a stallion. He's quite a big, strong horse, and usually Louis and Joanne ride the young ones. But because he's big, strong stallion, I haven't let them jump in too much. <laughs> Gosh! And what's so this one's name? Just to, so everyone can look out for him. Three coins. And it's spelled like three, then it's C-O-Y-N-E-S. Of course. Um, and talking of um, Argento offspring, your son Robert just won a Grand Prix quite recently on Vermento, who's another one of your exciting homebreds. I mean, you must get such a kick seeing these young ones do so well, especially with Robert in the saddle as well. Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, it's nice to see some of Argento's coming through now. Uh, he actually didn't start breeding that young in the first few years. He did, he didn't get so many mares. Now he's getting quite a few mares, but... So the hit rate from, you know, from the ones he's bred is looking good at the moment. Super, isn't it? Brilliant. And finally, we couldn't talk to you about all your good horses without having a look back at some of the great names you've been associated over the years. Let's um, let's start with Ryan Sun, first of all. He was, he was the one that's changed your life, wasn't he? He sounded like a real character. Yeah, I mean, um, I've been really lucky to keep finding top horses throughout my career and um, because that's the probably the hardest job is to you know keep finding good horses everybody's looking for the same thing you know so it's, it's some, sometimes it's sheer luck being at the right place at the right time but oh, i can imagine yeah ryan some probably we just found him competing at a local show and my father really spotted him because most people wouldn't look at him twice you know when he was <laughs> four four years old but my father spotted him and he liked him and so he started it all off put us on the map a little bit you know it probably changed all our lives to be honest so yeah it started from ryan's son and then um i had also like hopscotch gammon granouche milton came obviously milton was a massive thing for in my career you know it just uh it's like a horse of a lifetime the the others were good but he was like uh like i said just a horse, uh, horse in a lifetime. Can you, I know it's impossible, can you pick out a couple of highlights of your time with Milton? Are they the ones that you sort of enjoy reminiscing about? Winning, winning the World Cup final. Oh, yeah. Back to back, I think the first time, I think that was quite special because ever from, from the start of the World Cup, it, the Americans had won every single year. I think I was the first European to win and um, so that was special. The European Championships was special. Well, he won the World Cup final twice and second twice. Among his other um, Grand Prix wins, he was just a, just a special horse and, and you know, he, he was always um, wanted to do well for you. He always tried his best. He's the one people still remember you with. I mean, even after all these years, I mean, it takes some horse to, to have that in people's memories, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it was just, you know, he, he looked special. Yeah. He used to go in the <laughs> ring with his ears forward. And he actually did love the attention and the, the atmosphere. I used to get a big chair every time I went in. And with some horses, with some horses it could really put them off, you know. But yeah. Milton, it was, uh, he just jumped better. And he used to do that flying, he used to jump up in the air, didn't he? Well, I kind of, um, I wouldn't say I trained him to do it, but <laughs> he, used, he, used, he used to get excited, he'd get excited in the prize giving. Yeah. And when I tried, especially just before the lap of honour, you know, when they'd give you your rosette and you'd been stood there and getting all the sponsors and that around you. And, and then, then it was lap of honour time and um, he was really keen to go. And I found out just the right way to hold him and just squeeze him that he could, 
you know, like do the jump in the up in the air on all fours. <laughs> and it came a bit of the it came like a bit of the party piece, you know, at the end. He, oh, awesome! I, I, could, I could get him to do it when I, you know, whenever I wanted after <laughs> after that. Oh, such a character. Do you ever sort of take time out and go and look in your trophy? I presume you've got more than one trophy cabinet, but go and look through your silverware and and sort of take a trip down memory lane at all? <laughs> to be honest, no. I mean, yeah, I've got quite a good trophy cabinet, and you you <laughs> kind of you kind of walk past it every day and part of the furniture, really. But no, it's uh, I've, I've had a good career and uh, just keep finding good horses and, and, and still doing it at my age, you know, what could I ask more, really? So Absolutely. It's been really good. Yeah, and long may it continue. Um, Sean, thank you. Every time I speak to you, I say I could reminisce for hours about these wonderful stories. <laughs> but um, yeah, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast this week. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Okay, Jen, you're welcome. So I'm joined first of all by our showing editor Alex Robinson. Alex was at Hoy's last week, Horse of the Year show. She was riding as well as reporting, so it was a busy week. So Alex, first of all, you've got to tell us how you got on with your pony, who's called Buddy. Tell us how it went. Thanks, Pippa. Yeah, had an absolutely amazing time. It was my first time riding at Hoy's. Uh, qualified back in August at the National Pony Society Summer Championship. So I had a couple of months to prepare, but I don't think anything can really get you ready for that atmosphere when you're in that top spec arena. Um, so we had a lovely trip down, kind of make a bit of a holiday of it, stay over in a nice hotel and the ponies kind of have got so much attention. Um, and he performed a little heart out, bless him. He was in the Fell Pony of the Year Championship on the Wednesday and he was quite lit up by the atmosphere there was a lot of you know crowds cheering and clapping and but he did hold his own and I'm so proud of him uh, but we didn't get a place but we did get a lovely photo and came away with a finalist rosette which is uh more than enough for me <laughs> oh that was your debut riding at Hoy's yeah that was my first time um so yeah it was lovely to do it on a pony I've kind of brought on myself and uh yeah it was just a a great experience oh that's great and then later in the week you were on the reporting detail for the horse and hound website and magazine mm -hmm. tell us about some of the classes that you were covering what were the highlights for you yeah, so I kicked off my reporting on a Friday, but I was there on a Wednesday with my own pony and got to watch the M&Ms, which is definitely my favourite day. Uh, champion of the, that section was a beautiful well Section D called Mena Eurostar. He's ridden by Adam Forster and he's owned by Karen Johnson. And he is just absolutely beautiful. This title for him has been a long time coming. Uh, Thursday, I was also there and the M&M working on ponies were out in force and champion of that section was the Shetland Car Millo Magician ridden by B Shepherd and he's actually 21 years old and he, he retired from the ring that day so that, that was lovely to watch. Um, there was quite a few retirements at Hoy's actually. Uh, Jane Ross's lovely riding horse Casino also bowed out after her second place in the small class and Magnus Nicholson's Boland lucky slipper the heavyweight also retired after he was second in his class so yeah there was a lot of uh, a lot of tears around the ringside when those legendary horses uh, retired oh well it's lovely to hear those horses doing well on their final outings and then things sort of come to a climax with the supremes on on the weekend is that right 
Yeah, well, we had the Hunters on Friday and then the Cobbs um, on Saturday, as well as a few other M&M classes. And there was lots of show pony sections kind of intertwined. So it was really full on. And yeah, the Supremes took place on, on the Sunday. There was a pre-judging in the Top Spec Arena where all the combinations came forward. Um, the judges were Henrietta Knight and Richard Johnson. Uh, and champion of the pony section was the beautiful show pony, Rosebury Final Edition with Ellie Hartington. And he's produced by Jill Thompson. And he's an eight-year-old. Yeah, he was the very worthy winner of the ponies. And then Rob Walker got his moment with the lovely Hunter Viewpoint. He's been Hunter Champion at Hoy's three years now. And this is kind of the one I think that them two have really been deserving of. So that was a lovely way to finish the show. Oh, and was it a good atmosphere there? Were people happy to be back? Yeah, definitely. Everyone was in such a good mood. Um, there was a lot of first-timers this year who, who reigned. One of my favourite winners was um, a, young, a young rider called Lexi Brash. And she was, uh, she's 11 and she's from Scotland. And this was her first time with her pony, um, Wellbank Gabriel, or Harry as they call him at home. And they won the M&M Young Riders on the, on the Saturday. And it was just an absolutely magical moment to watch uh, for, that, for that family to have that win and championship. Yeah, everyone was in such good spirits. It was so lovely to be back. Oh, fun. And um, did you see any ponies there that you had your eye on, Alex? If you could have just popped one in your lorry and, and taken it back to Cumbria, which would it have been? I mean, probably the little lead rein of, of Hunter type. I mean, I have to find a rider for him because I'm definitely too big. But he was a little grey called Priestwood Rockstar, ridden by Grayson Brady Brook. Um, and he's a 13-year-old. And I've seen him around on the circuit for a lot of years. And Hoyes is, again, the one that's always kind of eluded him. And it was lovely to watch him win with his new producer, Sarah Emerson. And he just owned the ring and he just looked after his little jockey so well. And I would definitely love to take him home. Yeah, he was absolutely beautiful. Oh, new career there for you, Alex, as a pony mm. producer. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> Only a part-time career, though, because I don't want you to stop being my showing editor. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that you had a good week with Buddy and with your reporting as well. And thanks for joining me today to talk about it. Thanks, Pippa. So I'm here now with two of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk. First of all, our news writer, Becky Murray. Becky, I was about to say, how are you? But I know the answer is that you've been a bit in the wars. Yes, I've had better weeks. Um, after getting Chloe back in work, you know, enjoying riding, I had an accident last Monday and have broken two of my fingers. So happy days. Oh, and that wasn't even a riding accident. You were tacking up, is that right? That's right. I was putting the reins over Chloe's head and I still don't know what happened. I think something spooked her and some, yeah, my hand got caught and she took off and uh, yes, snapped a couple of fingers. Ooh. And that's the worst part, actually, because when I've been speaking the doctors and nurses I sort of said oh so you came off your horse you were riding I was like no didn't get that far <laughs> oh god well it sounds painful and horrible so poor you some horse related injuries going on and uh, we also have with us our news editor Eleanor Jones Eleanor you were at horse of the year show last week weren't you yeah, had had an absolutely fantastic week, and and I imagine that just about everyone was there would have said the same thing. It was it was brilliant. Yeah, I've just been chatting before this with uh, Alex Robinson, our showing editor, about the showing side of things, and you were primarily covering the jumping, of course. But just tell us first of all about sort of what was the atmosphere like, and and how did it feel to be to be back at Hoy's? 
It was just amazing. I mean, even for sort of some of the, some of the national classes are run quite early in the morning on weekday mornings, and even those there were there were loads of people there. I think everyone was just so pleased to be back, and that's riders and and the crowd. I mean, the atmosphere for Saturday night on the Puissance was just like nothing I've ever felt. It was absolutely brilliant, and everyone. I mean, some I think some of the horses were a bit sort of oh, we haven't been in front of crowds this big for a while because obviously it's the first big indoor show for you know best part of two years, but. Um, yeah it was just it was brilliant to be back and the sport was just there was some world-class sport there as well so good week all round. Mm, tell us about a couple of those classes pick out a couple to tell us about Eleanor. Yeah, so the puissance uh, again was was absolutely amazing um two riders and horses shared the sports there was Michael Duffy the Irish rider on RMF Charlie, who people might remember, won a couple of puissances before COVID with William Whitaker. Um, so he and Joseph Trunkfield, who was riding Senators Rondego, who's only eight and was bred for dressage, um, both cleared two metres 16 in, in five rounds. And, and the you know, the crowd just took the roof off, which was absolutely amazing. And then there was um, John Whitaker and Shane Breen shared the, the five fence challenge. They cleared 175 uh, in in the last round that was absolutely amazing uh, and of course the Grand Prix fantastic Grand Prix win for Harry Charles on Stardust who he's not had that long and um, yeah it was just the quality of the of the jumping was was top class. Mm, and great to see Harry who is obviously our very young Olympian this summer coming through and, and taking that flagship class at a national show in the autumn oh, well it must have been great to be there Eleanor Becky we're going to come to you now to talk about a story that you've been writing this week about a breeding legacy this follows an absolutely horrendous accident which really rocked the horse world about six or seven weeks ago now can you just remind us what happened Becky Yes, this was really awful. Um, four event horses were killed on their way to Blair Castle horse trials. The horse box they were travelling in had broken down and was struck by a lorry. And the horses involved were Nick Gauntlet's Stallion Party Trick and Sophie Humes's Ice Cool Cooley, Charisma TH and Fairy Tale Cooley. A really awful thing to happen. But some good maybe hopefully coming out of this now with this sort of legacy project. Tell us what that's all about, Becky. The legacy is called the Archie Legacy um, after Party Trick. And there was such a huge outpouring of support for Nick and Sophie after what happened with so many people wanting to do something for them. And this legacy has been founded by Pammy Hutton and Ailey with support from Nick. The idea is to fundraise and use some of Party Trick's limited frozen semen to put some of the best competition mares in foal. Now this will be done using embryo transfer or the intracytoplasmic sperm injection technique. And the hope is one day we might see one of Party Trick's offspring at an Olympic Games. And I spoke to Nick about this and, you know, he said Archie was the best horse he's ridden. And it's about allowing him to be great as a sire now when he didn't ultimately get a chance to be great in his own right. Mm. And of course, Party Trick by Chilly Morning, who was produced by by Nick originally um, before he went on to so much championship success with William Foxpit, including the Rio Olympics. So possibly a, a grandson of Chilly Morning a, or a daughter, a, an offspring of, uh, of Party Trick as a future Olympic horse would be an incredible, an incredible thing to come out of this really sad story. Well, I imagine that we probably have the link to that fundraising on our web story, Becky, so people can uh, can hopefully find that if they want to contribute. Tribute. Yes, that's right. 
Great. Eleanor, coming back to you now to talk about a really interesting topic. I know it's something that you found exciting and just fascinating when you were researching it. This is a new ethical framework for decision making around horses. What is the background to this? Who's involved? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? Yeah, so we've we've reported uh, a few times on on this uh, equestrianism social license to operate, which is essentially sort of public acceptance of the use of of horses in sport. Which, if we haven't got that, then you know the sport hasn't got a future. We have to keep the majority of people thinking it's okay for horses to be involved with sport. And this ethical framework has been developed by the Royal Veterinary College in conjunction with World Horse Welfare. And they've uh, sort of released a framework. They've been testing it for a long time. And then they held a conference on the 4th of October to talk people through it a bit more. Mm, Okay. And tell us a bit more about the framework. What does it actually do? How does it work? So it's it's a, a, a process, a set of steps that any what the idea is anyone can use it to answer an ethical question so and they talked us through the way they had um, participants from across the industry different disciplines different different areas of expertise and they tested it and at each stage they then fed back and 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 the framework was refined and retested and as one example um, there was the former endurance national champion uh, Susan Howes was on the panel with some uh, other people who were experienced horsey people but not in endurance and the question they were asked to discuss was um, the endurance GB rule that says novice horses who are five are allowed to complete 10 rides in their first year of competition to a maximum 450 kilometers and she said she'd always thought it was an awfully long way and, and, and maybe too far for a horse of that age but she had because she had to sort of explain it to to the other people who didn't know about endurance and then they went one of the steps in the process is to look at evidence and so they went and looked at competition records of horses who had done that distance in their first year and found that actually there was nothing to suggest it had done them any harm they were all or lots of them were still competing years later and going up to advanced levels and she said well it changed my mind because actually I think it's okay. Hmm, really interesting. And I know that the leader of this project is Madeleine Campbell, who's a lecturer in human-animal interactions and ethics. She's a vet, she's a rider. And I actually read a book by Madeleine about the ethics of using horses in sport a, a, a year or so ago. And um, it was really fascinating. So I'm really interested in everything she does. What hmm. might be the sort of next steps with this framework? What might it be used for in the future? Well, so they, they want to engage with more sort of regulatory and governing bodies. The um the FEI Veterinary Com- Committee Chairman Jenny Hall was there and she said they might look at it and also engage to grassroots sport. And the sort of aim is that we can't just say as, a, as an industry and as horsey people, oh, this is OK, you don't know what you're talking about. We have to be able to say, right, well, this is an ethical thing to do. And here is this consistent process that we've used. And this is why we believe it's ethical and this is why it's OK. So it's all about keeping that public acceptance and not just going, oh, this is what we do. It's fine. Mm, Well, it's really interesting. So I would advise anybody to have a look at that story and at Madeline's book as well, if you're interested in this sort of thing. Well, thank you very much, Eleanor. And thank you, Becky, for joining us today too. Do look after those fingers. (laughs) The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by NAF. It's time to boost compromised respiratory systems. NAF recommends five-star respirator boost for horses who are eating preserved forages, are stabled for longer or showing signs of poor performance. Respirator boost gets to work in just 48 hours.
Now we're going over to performance psychologist and mental coach Charlie Unwin. Charlie works across sport, business and the military and helps riders to optimise their performance from the inside out in training and in competition. He's passionate about working with equestrians because the horse's performance is an extension of the rider's. His clients won an incredible four gold medals at the recent Olympics in Tokyo, as well as three silvers and one bronze. Over to you, Charlie. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode where we're going to be talking about nerves. Now, nerves are a huge topic in sport in general, uh, and not least in equestrian sport. So therefore, I'm going to be doing a, a two-part episode on nerves. This first part, I want to talk about the physiological challenge of nerves. And in the second part, for next time, I'll be talking about the mental challenge for nerves. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, nerves and how we experience nerves and how they affect our performance on the horse are very much governed by two parts of the human system. Uh, there's a physiological component that we probably experience in terms of our heart racing, blood pumping to our muscles, um, and the, the kind of emotional experience. And then there's a sort of mental challenge to what we're doing, our ability to focus and think, make decisions and problem solve in the way that we might do when we're not nervous or when we're not under pressure. So I'm going to address the physiological component first, because many people believe that it's the physiological component of our performance that is, if you like, the base, the core of our performance. If we don't get our physiology right, it's very difficult to get our mentality right. In fact, as a psychologist, I've now come round to the idea that really psychology cannot be understood fully without understanding what's going on in our body. And likewise, I think that a lot of physiologists probably say the same. They do not get a, a complete appreciation of what's going on in the body without understanding how that's being affected by someone's uh, mental states, mentality, mindsets. Uh, and for that reason, I, I really believe that um, these two departments at university probably should uh, get a lot closer together. Uh, so uh, in this, I I'm going to explain a little bit about what we can do about that and, and how we can train our physiology to be better under pressure. I've described a few symptoms there, which may be very familiar to you indeed. And typically the symptoms of nerves, uh, high heart rate, uh, tension, perhaps in the muscles, energy. It is just energy. That's exactly what it is. I don't always like using the term nerves. It's probably why, if I'm being honest, most people uh, want to work with me. However, Nerves are just energy. They are neither good nor bad. Uh, although, to be honest, without nerves, we probably wouldn't have the sort of peak energy that we need to be able to perform at our very best. So there's no doubt that without nerves, we can be within our comfort zone. It certainly feels more comfortable and it's easier to think clearly, to stay calm in mind. However, with that additional energy that nerves give us, it does allow us to heighten our performance. It allows us to think quicker, to be able to respond quicker. So if we're going cross country, for example, nerves have an obvious value to us. But even in the dressage arena where things are a lot calmer, 
nerves can kind of give us the commitments, the energy that we need to what we're doing. They can actually sharpen our focus if we learn how to channel them properly. So let's get this physiological element right first. The physiological component, the core physiological component of managing nerves and allowing us to channel this energy into something positive rather than something negative starts with our breathing. Now that might not be new news to many of you. How many of you have been told, don't forget to breathe as you're about to go into the arena? The thing is, how many of you actually take that really seriously? How many of you take breathing as seriously as any other instruction or technical instruction that you might get from your coach or give yourself before you go into the arena? Probably very few. And as a result, what do we do? We hold our breath. And holding our breath is a classic physiological response to anticipation. We're waiting to see what's going to happen. The problem with holding our breath is that uh, we obviously don't get oxygen into our lungs and our whole nervous system starts to operate very differently once we're holding our breath. The first thing holding our breath does, it affects our heart and our heart rhythms. Uh, and this is a big problem because if our heart is beating in a chaotic or inconsistent rhythm, as it does when we hold our breath or when we just breathe very shallow, then it sends signals to the brain that something's up and we suddenly perceive the environment that we're in as threatening. And as a result of that, blood rushes to the emotional centers of the brain and completely bypasses uh, or deserts the thinking centers of the brain, the areas of the brain that allow us to focus, uh, in particular around the prefrontal cortex, but also areas of the brain that allow us to coordinate our actions. So suddenly we become effectively disunited on the horse. We're not thinking clearly, we're not mindful, we're not able to focus on what's right in front of us. Instead, our mind kind of goes everywhere. Uh, it's chaotic. So as we come back to this sort of core response, what's the one thing we're in control of in any situation in life, not just on the horse, our breathing? And we shouldn't underestimate how important that is. So breathing, uh, unsurprisingly, becomes the first step in my three-step fundamentals to peak performance. Get our breathing right, and by right I mean deep and rhythmical, then we are able to affect our whole nervous system through the heart, which then is able to influence the way that uh, we're able to think and able to focus. The second component beyond breathing is uh, relaxation. So active relaxation. I'm not talking about putting your feet up in front of Netflix. I'm talking about actually being able to use your breathing to actively focus on your muscle groups, to be able to relax core muscles, key muscles, and stay relaxed as well. Now, there's this thing called creeping tension that many of us are unaware of. And it can, as the name suggests, creep up on us over a period of not just minutes, hours, but actually days, even weeks, as we start to even think about competing or something that makes us nervous. We are starting the conditions in which uh, tension starts to manifest in the muscles. And tension's bad. Tension's problematic. It's very inefficient uh, when we have tension in our muscles. 
uh, the brain isn't able to to sort of coordinate and control our muscles as effectively our muscles don't respond therefore our timing goes off and we wonder why we think we're doing the same thing but actually the horse is responding very differently so muscular tension is hugely problematic now in simple terms what I often train riders to do is to just tune in to what's going on in their body, to get good at noticing tension in the muscles. Uh, I remember a quote from Sharon Hunt uh, when I worked with her in eventing, and she said, I had no idea how tense I got until I learned what it was really like to actively relax. And I think that quote pretty much sums it up. Relaxation is is a type of, or it's an area of self-awareness we have to be good at. So as well as being self-aware in the impact that we're having on the horse technically, we've got to be self-aware in our own bodies as well. If we're not self-aware in our own bodies, how can we learn to then manage that? So it's one thing kind of being able to breathe and to actively relax. It's another thing actually having the awareness to know when to do that. So active relaxation, uh, I give lots of tips for how to do this. If you visit center10.com, there are lots of programs and courses where, where this is an important part of that. And fundamentally, I would encourage you to systematically go through your body. Now, uh, one part at a time. So you might start with your heads, um, your, your foreheads, the muscles around your eyes, your jaw, uh, through to your neck and your shoulders, they pick up tension mostly. Basically, we pick up most tension from the shoulders upwards. And when we learn how to soften those muscles, actively relax them, we can go a long way to being able to relax the rest of our body. But I tend to do the systematic scan through the body. Now, relaxation is the second step, it needs to be done in conjunction with your breathing. So once you're breathing deeply, and rhythmically, and those are the two key components, preferably through your nose, um, that can add a huge amount of value. It's on your out-breath that we learn to relax. Your out-breath is the release of any tension in your muscles. And it takes a remarkable amount of practice to do this really well. You will all be able to do this sat quietly at home, but can you do it on the horse when it matters most? So those are the kind of fundamentals. And like I say, you can learn more about that if you visit center10.com. Uh, however, next time what I want to do is then work more on the mental side of nerves. So step one and two address that physiology. Step three will start to address, right, how do we direct our thoughts on our, on our attention in order that nerves can actually help our performance rather than hinder it? So with that in mind, I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you, Charlie. Next week, Charlie will follow on from this advice by talking about the mental challenge of nerves. Our guest will be the 2021 SEIB search for a star champion, Lucy Hopkins, who won with her hunter, Chili Breeze. And of course, we'll review all the week's news. I hope you're enjoying listening to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. Please do rate, review and share the podcast in your app and on social media if you think your friends would like to listen in too. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.